we start Genesis, it's going to be a great book. There's, there's a lot here. There's many, many things in here that are really interesting and, and really valuable. And Steve, I'm really anxious to get into this book because there's, there's so much here. When most people think of Genesis, they think of Adam and Eve, and that's about it. Really, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that's one piece. There's three chapters on Adam and Eve in the Garden, the fall. And then there's a chapter or two on the flood. There's another chapter on the Tower of Babel. And then there's 39 chapters on the history of Israel. The bulk of the passages in the book of Genesis deal with the beginning of Israel. The word Genesis just means beginnings. And so it's the beginnings of a lot of things, including our relationship with God. It's going to be a great, fascinating book. It is, Glenn, and I'm looking forward to going through this just as I look forward to going through all of the books that we study. It is a book of beginnings. We have the beginning of creation. We have the beginning of mankind. We have the beginning of the nation of Israel. There's also the beginning of the adversity between God and Satan that is on this earth. We do have some indications that there was something that had gone on before that, but we have Satan or the devil who interjects himself between us and God and begins a conflict that is there. And we have the beginning and layout of the plan of salvation that God has for all of us. What we're going to do, because Genesis is so big and there's so much here, we're going to spend this session giving kind of an overview of what's in the book. And then we'll have a couple, maybe three sessions on creation issues and questions, because those are so much on the front of people's minds. There'll be two to four sessions here before we really get into exegeting the passage, simply because there's so much here. There's mankind's fellowship with God, but the introduction of sin broke that fellowship. And then Genesis, very quickly after sin enters, we have the first murder. We have a, a downward spiral of horribleness that happens because of sin. Then we have some these great themes. We, we have this man, Melchizedek, that just walks in out of the pages of scripture and walks off again. But he gets picked up again later in the New Testament as being a type of Christ. Jesus is said to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Very important themes here. There's the covenant with Abraham that sets the stage for most of the rest of the scriptures. No less than the gospel is founded upon Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. We have the command by God for the child of promise, Isaac. He commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Very dramatic scene there. We've got the beginnings of Israel. Mainly, again, most of the book of Genesis is following four people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, in the beginnings of the nation of Israel. We have this theme of God dealing with nations and then picking one of them to work through. And he tells Abraham, through you, I'm going to build a great nation and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through this. It's really a full, rich book. It's not really that he picks one nation. He actually creates the nation out of nothing when he chooses Abram and creates this nation of 
Israel. When he creates the people, there's this great literary story with Joseph going to Egypt and his brother sell him into slavery. We see God's providential hand working through that. We also see in the book of Genesis, there's this man, Jacob, whose name means a deceiver. He goes through life being a deceiver, but in the end, he comes back to the Lord. It's a great, it, it tells me and you, Steve, even us have a chance that we can go back to the Lord because we've all deceived ourselves and we've attempted to deceive God. But just like Jacob, we have a chance to come back to the Lord. We, we'll learn what it means to come back to Bethel. There's these great themes in the book of Genesis. We see God working over and over again with flawed people, regular people. To me, Glenn, that gives me encouragement because I'm a flawed person. And being that I know that I can have salvation because I have scripture here that tells me God works with flawed people and he redeems flawed people. They're not any better than me. They're not any worse than me. They're the same as as me in many, many ways. Those are the things that we begin to see. We also see some theological things going on here of God not necessarily working through the firstborn. Many times he works through the secondborn person or a person in the family that is younger. That is something that we'll also work with. So we see God using various ways, working with different people, not a necessarily a one pattern God. He works many various different ways. We also learn in Genesis that The things that happen here at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, it's really a bookend for the entire Bible. The things that happen in Genesis, it's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of God's fellowship with mankind. It's the beginning of sin and the beginning of the separation from God because of sin. It's the beginning of God's plan to reconcile mankind to himself. Here in Genesis, we've got the first bookend, and most of the rest of Scripture is this playing out of how God's going to redeem mankind. Then later, way down at the end in the book of Revelation, is the other bookend where we see the final reconciliation. In Genesis, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth and the curse of, of earth because of sin. But then way down in Revelation, we see the other bookend. We see the new heavens and the new earth and the complete redemption of mankind. It's all one big story that fits together, both with God's judgment of sin and his pathway towards reconciliation. The literature here is just so rich. Now, in Genesis, if we look at most of the commentators, they'll make a division between chapters 1 through 11, which deal with Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve and the fall, the flood of Noah, and the Tower of Babel. All of that is Genesis 1 through 11. Starting at verse 12, the timeline slows down, and he begins working with Abraham, and we have the Abrahamic covenant and the beginning of the nation of Israel. Most of the commentators will make a hard division between chapters 1 through 11, and chapters 12 to the end of the book. I would agree that is a a good place to make a division. But what I think many, if not most people miss, is that the theological themes that are presented in the first 11 chapters 
flow naturally into the story of Abraham and the creation of Israel. There's not by any means a hard division of concepts and ideas in between the first 11 chapters and the rest of the book of Genesis, because we do have this idea of God creating mankind to work with him and be in fellowship with him through sin. We're separated. God judges mankind in the flood and then tells the people fill the earth again you know through God's grace he reinvigorates Noah and his sons to go fill the earth again but they mess up they don't scatter and fill the earth they gather together and try to make a one people of themselves that competed with God God scatters them again at the tower of Babel and says now I'm going to make a a specific nation that's going to do my will these themes that play through it's a natural flow from the first 11 chapters into 12 and following chapters 11 and 12 are put there for a reason it's not a random it's not a hard break of ideas I think too many people make this hard break between the first 11 chapters and categorize the first 11 chapters in a way that doesn't meet the theological flow of the book or the rest of God's theology for that matter. We also see that later on, as the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt as a nation and God gives the laws to Moses and Moses records those, one of them is that you shall keep the Sabbath day as a day of rest. And that goes directly back to creation. We mentioned that as we went through Exodus, that by resting on the Sabbath, it was a declaration and honoring of God's creation. That creation took place hundreds of years before God ever started to begin to work with Abraham or that the nation of Israel ever came about. Those themes and those things that are there prior to chapter 12 are also present as we begin to go through the story and history of Israel, not just in Genesis and its beginnings, but then as we go into Exodus and then Joshua, Judges, and on. So those first few chapters, Glenn, I agree with you. There's more there than just creation itself. There's a lot of things that carry over into God's redemption story. You mentioned the Sabbath, which again, is, is you're absolutely correct. The seventh day, God rested. And that was the foundation for the day of rest. There's other themes as well. There's marriage. In, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created them male and female. And he says a, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Marriage goes all the way back to creation. Jesus brought that out when he was in a debate with the Jewish leaders. He said, you don't know your scriptures. He goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and says that a man and a woman are supposed to be married. We have the tithe. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, he gives him a tenth. All of these concepts are doctrinal things that were many, many, many years before the Levitical law, the Mosaic law, that had commandments on those things. They go all the way back to creation. There's some things that are our theology that are hardwired into creation, and we learn them way back here in Genesis. There's a lot of doctrine that's given here. These passages way back here in Genesis are the very foundations of a lot of our theology. What do we see in Genesis chapter 1? 
and it was good. He made the light and it was good. So we learn that God makes good things. We learn that God not only is powerful enough to create the world, but he's in control of the world. He forms the world. He's wise enough to form it in a logical way. He's in control of it. Humans were created with a fellowship towards God. Sin separates us from God. That's no less than the gospel message. We find the beginnings of it back here in Genesis. God will judge sin. We see that over and over again, just in the first handful of chapters. We see the doctrine of grace. We see even as early as Adam and Eve, when they sin, God judges them by putting them out of the garden, but he clothes them with animal skins. We see both God's wrath and his love all the way back here in the Garden of Eden. The doctrine of faith, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Genesis 15, 6 is no less than the cornerstone of our faith. Paul quotes that over in Romans chapter 5. Mankind was separated from God through sin, but reconciled through Jesus Christ. Critical parts of that are way back here in Genesis. Promise of a deliverer, major theological theme throughout scripture. Quote, he shall crush your head and he shall bruise your heel in Genesis 3.15, talking about the serpent causing the sin, but yet Jesus Christ is going to reconcile back again. The seed of Abraham, unto thy seed I will give this land, Genesis 12.7. So we have these wonderful promises that were given all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way back to Abraham, that are major doctrinal themes that play out through the New Testament. The idea that God's going to test our faith. We see that in the story of God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. Are we going to believe God or not? Are we going to follow his commands or not? We see all these themes. Again, besides these theological aspects, these doctrinal things, the story in Genesis is one of the all-time great stories, all-time great pieces of literature in all of mankind. The story of when Joseph was sold by his brothers and was locked in a in a prison unnecessarily, but God was providentially using that. It's, it's just a great story. It's just a great literature. Next, skeptics and the critics will just wave a hand and say, oh, Genesis is just one more of many creation myths just like a lot of other ancient myths. There's a lot of ancient myths on how the world came to be, and that's just one more fantastic story. Well, Steve, I'm convinced that people that make those claims, that I don't think they read Genesis, and I don't think they read the other creation myths, because if they did, they would see some vast differences. In the creation myths of the ancient Near East and the ancient world, these had stories of how the gods came to be God. They had stories of these gods would be struggling or fighting with each other, or the gods would have some sort of sexual union with each other, and that would generate uh, the world or the things, you know, the trees and the rest of creation came about through some interaction between these gods. There was a process for how the world came to be. We don't see any of that in Genesis. What we see is God said, let there be, and it was so. 
in Genesis, there's really no process here at all. It's just in the beginning, God created it. And he said, let it happen. And it was there. We have God speaking things into existence, vast different from the creation myths and the origin of God myths that we find in the ancient world. Glenn, I'm glad that you're making that clarification because several times uh, earlier, you mentioned the word literature. But as you're talking about that, you're talking about this as being that the prose that is there, the way that it's put together and the way that it's structured in a literary style tells us that this is something that's much deeper than some work of fiction or some mythological documentation. I'm glad you're making that distinction between the two. That's what you really mean by literature. It has been documented in such a way that it's very concise and precise, and it gives us so much information, but it in, is no way a mythological story. Yeah. When I say literature, contrast that to, say, the dictionary, right? The dictionary is true. Everything in a good dictionary, it's, it's all factually true. It's just not a very interesting read. Genesis is a wonderful story. It, it just, it's, it just reads well. It's engrossing. There's plot twists. There's these dramatic things where we can see ourselves in it. Genesis is so much more than Adam and Eve. But when we talk to people and we talk Genesis, Oh, Adam and Eve, the garden, the serpent, people just sort of wave their hand and think that's it. And there's so much more here. With that, what I want to do now is to talk about that before we really get into exegeting the passage. And we'll talk a little bit now about Adam. And in the next session, we'll get into a lot of the questions about creation, evolution, and age of the earth, questions like that in the next session. But for now, what I want to deal with is this concept of Adam and how the Bible presents Adam. In the Bible, if we just look at what the text says, everywhere Adam is mentioned, he's always mentioned as a real person. There's never a sense in the scripture that Adam is some sort of a fictional literary device. It's not a fairy tale story, Adam. It's, it doesn't read like the myths of the ancient world. For example, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Adam is a normal person. He talks to God. God is talking to him. Adam and Eve talk to each other. In Genesis 5, Adam has a son. First Chronicles has nine chapters of names. This person begat that person, begat that person. Well, Adam is just one more name in the list. He starts it, has a son, who has a son, who has a son. Many of the people in that list, we know them as historic characters. Romans chapter 5 mentions Adam in the same breath as Jesus Christ, in the same sentence as Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says, quote, the first man, Adam, and calls Jesus the last Adam. Everywhere Adam is mentioned, he's mentioned as a real person. He's mentioned in genealogy lists with King David and people like that. He's never presented in the text as a fictional literary device. Glenn, the main reason why you're bringing that out is because the Hebrew word Adam means mankind. What has happened through history is we had the critics that come in and they want to change this and say, oh, it's not really a real person. It was mankind that God is talking about 
in the creation. That's really what you're addressing here is that while the word itself means mankind, it's also the name of a specific person, the first being that was created by God. Right, exactly. Part of the issue comes about when we try to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then we look at current views of science and try to reconcile those. And people come up with different theories of, well, maybe Genesis is some sort of a myth or a combination of a myth and history. All I'm saying is that if we just look at the text, then Adam's never presented as as anything other in the text other than just a regular human being. There's no literary clues anywhere in the scriptures that says that Adam is anything other than a regular human being, a regular man. And usually when I teach Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I don't ever start with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I start with Romans chapter 5, because Romans chapter 5 is Paul's explanation of no less than the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, just read Romans chapter 5, starting at verse 12 and going through verse 21. He explains the gospel. In there, he says, Adam was the first man, sin entered through Adam, and death entered the world through that sin. And so through Adam's sin, we all sinned. We all died, which means we were separated from God. And because of that separation, the only way to get back right with God again is through Jesus Christ. That's what's explained in Romans chapter 5. Well, in Romans chapter 5, in the same sentences... Adam is mentioned with Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, in Romans 5.12, talks about Adam. Romans 5.14, Adam is, quote, a type of him who was to come, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 15 in Romans 5, compares Adam's sin with Jesus' salvation. So we have Adam and Jesus mentioned more than once in the same sentence. If we were to hold, as some liberal theologians do, that Adam is a figurative literary device, is Jesus a figurative literary device? If we have Jesus as a figurative literary device, we've just lost our entire salvation. That's why it's important, is because grammatically, in Romans 5 and in Corinthians and other places in the New Testament that's talking about no less than the gospel, Adam and Jesus are mentioned in the same sentence as both being human beings. The event that started with Adam was reconciled by the event of Jesus, namely death on the cross and resurrection. No room here for literary myths and figurative allegories at all. We have no less than the gospel being founded upon Adam and Jesus. Theologically, we're in very, very deep yogurt if we make Adam a figurative literary device. That's why Adam's important, and that's why we have to spend so much energy. Matter of fact, Steve, there's probably been, and I didn't do an account, but there's probably been more books written and more lectures given about the first three chapters of Genesis than there has been on just about anything else in Scripture. That's why it's important. The New Testament explanations of salvation have their beginnings way back here in Genesis. 1 Timothy 2, we've got Jude 14, we've got the genealogies in Luke, 
First Chronicles all giving Adam in a list with other real people. Therefore, we can only conclude doctrinally and grammatically from the New Testament that Adam is a real person. We have other clues in Genesis that tell us it's just not written as a myth. For example, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, there's a passage in here that talks about the rivers that are near Eden. We'll deal with that when we get to Genesis 2. But just to give a summary, in Genesis 2, talks about these rivers that are the boundaries to Eden. It tells us the names of the rivers, how many rivers there are, what direction they flow, what lands border the rivers, what type of stones and minerals there are. It tells us the quality of the stones and minerals. Passages like that are communicating facts and data. If we read passages like that, that are right here in the story of the creation days and the creation of Adam and the fall, then there's no theological, allegorical point here. There's not a hidden symbolic meaning behind the names of the rivers or things like that. Sure, you could draw some spiritual applications to these things, but this it doesn't read like an allegory. It just doesn't read that way. It's presented as just a factual explanation of what the rivers are and the minerals and what the land was like. What you're pointing out, Glenn, is what draws us to the type of teaching that we have been felt to call to and what we enjoy doing, which is this verse by verse expository style through scripture. It's through this type of teaching and study that you get into just the type of things that you're talking about when you were comparing what was talked about over in the New Testament that comes back to things that are discussed in the Old Testament here at the very beginning of Genesis. If you have a study that just starts out in the New Testament, you can get the gospel out of it and you can get the gospel message and people can come to salvation through that. But what happens many times is that the critics come in and the liberal theologians, and they begin talking about things that are back over in the Old Testament or here in the beginning three chapters of Genesis. Then there's no background for the people that look only into the New Testament. And from that, they get confused and they start wondering sometimes about their faith. It's a tactic that's used by the critics skeptics, and also by Satan to draw people away. As you pointed out many times, you can come up with these type of things until you have to actually deal with the text. By us dealing with the text through all of these books that we're going through, it lays just a tremendous, tremendous foundation for one's faith. Just to summarize what we've covered in, in this first session is that Genesis is a multifaceted book. It has a lot of theology proper about God. It has the beginnings of what we have to deal with in the New Testament, namely that we're separated from God. God works in the world and he's working through nations. He has grace 
He has judgment. He is in control of things. All of that is established way back here in Genesis. The reconciliation at the end would really not have the balance and the meaning that it has if we didn't have these first chapters of Genesis. We have this great piece of literature. We also have some very, very important things with Adam in the sense that Adam is not presented as allegory. If we hold that Adam is allegorical, is Jesus allegorical? If you hold that Jesus is allegorical in, in Romans 5, then now you're into heresy. Because why did a, an allegory doesn't have to die on a cross? If Jesus was real and Jesus really reconciled us, then we had to have a real separation back here in Genesis. They're tied together theologically. So what we're going to find, Steve, is that in our next session, there's so many questions amongst different people in the church about creation and evolution, and there's been different facets on all that. What we're not going to do is try to spend the rest of our careers here talking about creation and evolution, but what we are going to do is go through all the major viewpoints that have been presented by Christians and some non-Christians about how to reconcile Genesis and science, and we're going to have some hard questions for people on both sides of the spectrum, and some of which I think that are legitimately difficult questions. And I think you'll want to tune in simply because there's some issues here. If people think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are simple, then I think you're going to be surprised. We're going to maybe not answer every question, but we're going to show you how complex the issues really are. Here we go, Glenn, jumping into a new book. I'm glad that we're doing it. I'm looking really forward to going through Genesis, the beginnings, the beginnings of everything. We trust that you'll be back here because we're going to spend some time reasoning through these things next time. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll see you next time. May God bless you.